our prayer. Father, it is our prayer tonight that by your sufficient merit, you would raise us to your glorious throne. We come to this place excited about what you would say to us from your word. We commit our time to you. We commit our future to you. We ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for your blessings to rest with this service. Amen. You may be seated. I apologize to you for the condition of my face. Several have asked if my beautiful wife of 34 years, Ruth, who's here tonight, uh, finally got fed up with all of my back talk and really let me have it. Well, no, she wouldn't do a thing like that. I had oral surgery last Wednesday, and uh, if you think it looks bad on the outside, you should see what they did on the inside. So my apologies. I really enjoy preaching from the lectionary. And if you don't know what that is, it's a document put together by Christian scholars to take us through the church calendar. For each week of the year, a passage is selected from the Old Testament, the Psalms, a New Testament letter, and one of the Gospel narratives. And for this first service of Advent, the lectionary folk have selected for us passages from Jeremiah 33, Psalm 25, 1 Thessalonians 3, and Luke chapter 21. I'm always intrigued to look at those passages that are selected because they're supposed to center around a theme. And yet sometimes I read the passages and I think, who in the world put these together? What were they thinking? And when I first looked at Jeremiah 33, Luke 25, 1 Thessalonians 3, and Luke 21, I couldn't find any theme. But the longer I read and the more I prayed, a theme came bursting forth to me. And I found myself weeping at the profound truth that those lectionary folks had seen long before these inept eyes ever discovered it. And so though for this assignment I was supposed to have selected one of those passages from which to preach tonight, I've decided instead to look at all four very briefly to see if I can help you to discover that theme that I discovered as I was preparing. I want us to first examine 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, where we find the Apostle Paul looking for an opportunity to minister to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 12. Now, how, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. 
May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Portrayed here is a magnificent picture of a shepherd longing to be with his sheep. Night and day we pray that we may be able to come to you and see you again, Paul says in verse 10. It was during his second missionary journey that Paul and Timothy established the church in Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia. But the Orthodox Jewish synagogue in that city wanted nothing to do with a new Christian church, and so they persecuted that young church and drove Paul out of town. He traveled for a while and settled in Corinth. But he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how things were going. And Timothy brought back a report to him. And upon receiving that report, Paul sits down and writes the book of First Thessalonians. Now we're told by some in the church growth movement today that pastors are to spend none of their time looking after the current flock. They're to spend all of their time finding new sheep for the flock. And if some church growth people would have written 1 Thessalonians, they would have said, don't bother to call me, check with your small group leader. But not the Apostle Paul. He longs to visit the church himself. How can we thank God enough for you? He asks in verse 9. May God clear the way for us to come to you, he prays in verse 11. May your love for each other overflow, he admonishes them in verse 12. There's a striking example for us here of pastoral care and concern. Even though he was escorted out of town under cover of darkness for fear of the Jews who wanted to do him harm, Paul longed to go back to minister to those people whom he loved in Thessalonica. He wanted to take care of his sheep. It's a wonderful model for us to follow. Just imagine pastoral care of the current believers. Who would have thunk it? Certainly not the modern church growth movement. What a novel idea from the Apostle Paul. So, in this first Advent passage, Paul was looking for an opportunity to minister to his Thessalonian brethren. But now I invite your attention to Psalm 25, verses 4 through 7. Psalm 25. Verses 4 through 7. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all the day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. 
Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Here we find it is the psalmist who's doing the looking. He's looking for mercy, and in the process of looking for mercy, he asks God to do two things, to remember and to forget. Listen to verses 6 and 7 again. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. Remember mercy, but forget my sins. It's David who's writing this psalm. We have no way of knowing whether he wrote it before or after the incident with Bathsheba, but it really doesn't matter. Because whether David was guilty of breaking five of the Ten Commandments, as he was in the incident with Bathsheba, where he coveted his neighbor's wife, stole her from her rooftop, committed adultery with her, lied to her husband Uriah, and had Uriah sent to the front of the battle so he would be killed, five commandments disobeyed in one action. That's probably a record even for some of you. But whether it was because of that incident or something else that David had done, David knew that the only hope he had was to throw himself into the merciful hands of God and ask God to forget. It is because of God's mercy and love that he is able to forgive and forget our sins. The great prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, puts these words in the mouth of God. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to remember my sins. I grieve over the pain and confusion that I've cost myself and others with my shortcomings and failures. And the Bible tells us that we will indeed suffer the ramifications of those things we do in this life. But the good news is that in regards to eternity, God forgets our sins and separates them from us as far as the East is from the West. The story is told of a man who died and went to heaven shortly after becoming a Christian. When escorted into the presence of God, he fell on his face before God and began to cry, Oh, Father, I'm so unworthy to be here. All the rest of these people may deserve heaven, but I don't deserve to be here. God reached out and lifted the man up and said, Son, why do you feel so unworthy? The man's head dropped, for he could not look God in the eye 
and he says, Oh, Father, don't you remember when I stole that stereo when I was a teenager? Don't you remember all those times I told my wife I was working late when I really went to the casino to gamble? Don't you remember that I used to have a drinking problem? Don't you remember that I laughed at the preacher all those times he came to my house to invite me to church? Don't you remember those things, God? And God the Father reached out his hand and lifted the man's chin and looked him in the eye and said, No, I don't remember. God forgets our sins not because he suffers from Alzheimer's. Not because he thinks sin is something trivial. God forgets our sins because of the atoning death of his son on Calvary's cross. And David's prayer is my prayer. God, remember your love and mercy. Forget my sins. So Paul was looking for ministry. David was looking for mercy. And now I invite your attention to Jeremiah chapter 33, where we find the prophet looking for the promise. Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. As these words are penned by Jeremiah, the Babylonians are camped outside of the city of Jerusalem. The year is 587 B.C. 135 years earlier, the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, had fallen to the Assyrian army. And now, the southern kingdom of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital, is on the verge of falling to Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. The prophet's words to the people of God to turn from their wicked ways and avoid their idolatry had fallen on deaf ears, and now it was apparent the promised land would no more be in existence. For 29 chapters, Jeremiah preaches gloom, and doom. Then beginning in chapter 30, he gives a glimpse of hope for the future. Listen to chapter 30, verse 10. So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. And then in chapter 31, verses 3 through 6, 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim. Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. More than 70 years before the exiles return from Babylon to Jerusalem, God is assuring his people that the promise he made to Abraham and the promise he made to David would be fulfilled. They would once again live in the promised land. But in the verse of our text in chapter 33, Jeremiah is speaking not only of the return of the people from exile in Babylon, but he's predicting the coming of the new covenant, the coming of the righteous branch from David's line, the coming of the Messiah. And that leads us to the fourth Advent passage, Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 28. These are words from the lips of Jesus himself just hours before his crucifixion. Luke 21, verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Here we see Jesus himself telling us, that he not only came the first time, but he's coming again. For you see, the kingdom is not only now, it is not yet. And therefore, we are to look for the Lord. God promised Abraham a land, and that promise was fulfilled 4,000 years ago when Abraham made the journey from Ur of the Chaldees to Israel. God promised David a kingdom, and that promise was fulfilled 3,000 years ago when David set up Jerusalem as the capital of his kingdom. God promised the Babylonian exiles that they would return to that Jerusalem. That promise was fulfilled 2,500 years ago when they left the nation of Babylon and marched back to the city of God. God promised a righteous branch would come, and that promise was fulfilled 2,000 years ago in the embodiment of God in human flesh called Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here in Luke, the Messiah promises his disciples that he is coming back again, 
to return the earth to the initial glory for which it was intended before the fall. And so, we wait. While we, his 21st century disciples, work and study and pray, we're to keep at least one eye on the eastern sky, for we know not the day or the hour when he will come again. And when we see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory, we're to stand and lift up our heads, for our redemption draws nigh. Do you see the theme that integrates these four passages? Paul was looking to renew his ministry to the sheep at Thessalonica. David was looking for mercy so he could renew his relationship with God following his sin. Jeremiah was looking to renew the covenant of the promised land and in the process gives us the prediction of the coming of the new covenant through the righteous branch. And in Luke, Jesus himself tells us to look for his return when he will renew the earth. In each of these texts, there's a looking, there's a longing for renewal. In 1980, Johnny Lee had a hit single called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. I thought I might sing it for you, but then I thought better of it. And isn't that true of us? We look for love in all the wrong places. And the truth of the matter is we look for a lot of other things in all the wrong places as well. Well, if the Lord should choose to return to earth for a second time this Advent season, I don't want to be found looking in all the wrong places. I want to be found standing with my head lifted high, looking for ministry, looking for mercy, looking for the promise, looking for the Lord. Let us stand and sing in response.